Hey y'all, this is Unbound Love, the meandering conversation of two pastors. I am, thank you, thank you. I am Reverend Laura Whitman, and I am planting a Reconciling United Methodist Church in Rocky Mount, North Carolina, called the Mills Church. I am Gail Tabor, and I am planting a, uh, a church in Wilmington, North Carolina, United Methodist Church. Uh, it will be called SALT, uh, an inclusive uh, Methodist community. And uh, we haven't quite started yet, but we're getting there. Um, today we are, we are broadcasting from uh, the Wild Goose Festival, which is very exciting for us. We have an audience, um, and an audience is, well, different. And so um, very excited to be here at The Goose. And as we were talking about what would be our topic for today, because we like to have a topic that kind of guides our meandering, um, our topic for today is a hot button, hot button topic um, in our society right now, which is abortion and women's rights. And uh, maybe that's something that we're all thinking about and talking about a lot in our world right now and how we are supportive or not supportive of what is happening in the society around us. Um, I will say that I would consider myself to be a pro-life person. When I say that, I mean supporting people who are actually alive and that we need to be in support of those people who are uh, living and breathing and how do we care for them? So in, it, when I hear the word pro-life, um, I, I want to make that distinction between pro-life and pro-birth. Because I think there are a lot of people who are pro-birth but are not at all pro-life. Um, and so I would put myself in a pro-life category. And I get that, that that terminology becomes very wonky in our world. Because what the people who say, oh, I'm pro-life, not so much. They don't really care about you once you're born. All they care about is that you get born. Um, and I'll let Laura give her own side of that. So I would very much echo what Gail said. You know, I find myself in a, in a place where I believe that we should be providing resources and health care and all sorts of things that people actually need to, you know, live in our country. Um, and so... I really struggle with this issue personally because being a pastor, people make quick assumptions about what you believe. And so sometimes conversations out in public get really interesting. But what I find the most frustrating about this particular topic is that people make it a very black and white issue. And there is a lot of gray area um, in this conversation. So for me, I was um, 10 years old, uh, 10 years old in 10 days when uh, Roe v. Wade uh, came to be a law. And so I don't truly remember a time before Roe v. Wade and having that be um, law of the land um, because by the time I have a memory, uh, and, and I do remember when it passed, but only because I grew up in a fundamentalist family, um, in a fundamentalist church, and so there was a lot of hand-wringing and... We're going to hell in a handbasket uh, conversation that went around this idea that Roe v. Wade had passed. And I grew up in a, this is a horrible thing, and we need to work to overturn this, this um, decision by the Supreme Court. And I, I would say that most of my family is probably still there. 
um, that they are in this place where Roe v. Wade was a horrible law that needed to be changed. And then, you know, fast forward many years uh, when I met my spouse 25 years ago and um, my spouse is adopted, adopted in 1971. So just before Roe v. Wade and um, she comes from a, a, a place of an understanding where uh, Roe v. Wade was horrible law as well. And um, we are kind of having that amazing moment right now. She's the daughter of a Baptist minister and where her mom like made the announcement this past week, I've changed my mind on abortion and I've changed my right, my idea on women's rights around this. And we both were just like, what, what did that work? Like, did the earth stop moving? Because um, this has been a hard and fast thing. My child would not exist if Roe v. Wade had passed before my child was born um, and has been a hard and fast rule for her. So, and for Jen, it was a difficult transition to, to seeing abortion law and women's rights laws differently because it felt very personal. Um, and so that's the closest I have to a personal story about Roe v. Wade and about the rights that come along with that. And I think Laura has her own. Yeah. So, you know, my family, we have three little boys now. So, you know, things turned out okay um, in the end. But we have had two miscarriages, and both of them were right at 12 weeks. And the first time we had a miscarriage, um, it was really, really just unexpected. You know, we had heard a heartbeat. We thought everything was great. We were right at the end of the first trimester thinking of names, like coming up with you know, what we wanted to do for the nursery and all of those things. Um, but when we found out that our pregnancy was no longer viable, they told us, you know, you have to make a quick decision. Do you want to go home and take some pills and go through it on your own? Or do you want to take or have the DNC? And so um, the first time it happened, we chose to do the pills, which was a horrible experience. But what was even more insulting was when we went to the pharmacy to pick up the pills, and this was nine years ago um, in Durham, North Carolina. The pharmacist then even gave us a really hard time, asked us questions about what we were doing, and you know, did we know what this actually did, and are you aware of the effects of this drug? And we got like all kinds of questions. And you know, of course, you're in a very emotional state. You go straight from the hospital to picking up these pills, and then you go home and have the worst like four days of your life. Um, and the second time that it happened was around 12 weeks as well. Um, we had heard a heartbeat, everything was going really well. And then again, um, we lost our pregnancy. And at that point we decided to do a DNC. And the worst part of that was when you go in to have a DNC, the forms that you have to sign for consent say that you're having an abortion because that is the name of the procedure. And, um, it was really hard to fill out those forms and to say, yes, this is what I'm consenting to because you really want to give some perspective and context to why you're doing it. You know, you're like, well, I'm not having an abortion because I want to have an abortion. I'm having this because my body won't do a miscarriage the way your body is supposed to. Um, and I remember the doctor trying to comfort us and say, you know, that's not what it means here. But yes, the language is the same medically. Um, and so... It's always been a really sensitive topic for my family because we acknowledge that there is gray area in there and that these are medical procedures that are sometimes necessary and essential and they save lives. 
Um, and so when Roe v. Wade was overturned, I was immediately just, I felt really um, hopeless for a while. And it, so I shared my story on Facebook, which is never a good idea. <laughs> um, because true. at first there was a lot of support and then came people that I've never seen or known in my entire life with comments. Um, and one of the things I said was the side effect of Roe v. Wade being overturned is that you have to worry now about access to medical care. You have to worry about what doctors are actually going to do those procedures when they're medically necessary. Um, and you worry about access to drugs in certain pharmacies and in certain places. And people were coming out of the woodwork that were like, oh, that's not true. There's emergency contingencies in place. And we've already seen in the news so far that it absolutely is true and that there's lots of things happening that have been really dangerous for women across the country um, as they go through you know, these sorts of needs and procedures. And I can share some of that if you want me to. Yeah. So just in the news this morning, um, they posted about how um, in Kansas City, administrators are requiring pharmacist approval before dispensing medications to stop postpartum hemorrhages um, because those medications are the same medications used for abortion. And so as someone who had a postpartum hemorrhage when my second child was born, when it happened, they already had the drugs in the room. I got the drugs immediately and I was fine. But if you're having a postpartum hemorrhage, women die from that. And you're talking about having to go and find a pharmacist to approve the use of the drug so that someone's life can be saved. Another story was about a Wisconsin woman who bled for more than 10 days after an incomplete miscarriage because the emergency room staff refused to remove the fetal tissue after she had her miscarriage. These are all straight out of the news this morning. Um, and then in Texas, pharmacists were questioning women who were going to pick up miscarriage medications to have their miscarriage at home. Um, and some of them were not distributing it at all because they were making assumptions about what the drugs were actually being used for. And there's tons and tons of stories like that, but those were three that I saw this morning, and they just go on and on. So the, and, and really what we're talking about is the issue that, um, that someone else ha has the power to decide um, how, how and when and where. Um, medical procedures get to happen, but beyond that, how and when and where you have to live your life. Right. And one of the things that I keep wondering, and maybe it's for warranted, maybe it's not, but what happens to all these kids that are, that are now being forced into the world who are unwanted? And I imagine, um, I, I don't have children, so I'll, uh, maybe I should let you speak to this, but I imagine having children are, is a really hard thing. Like, they're, they're messy, and they talk when you don't want them to, and they say things you don't want them to say. All the time, mostly and, during children's sermons. And, I, I mean, it, I'm, like, when I set something down in my house, I want it to be there when I go to pick it up, and I think that kids probably are not all that agreeable to that and like I just think that's just would be a whole lot of problems and so being forced to I mean and that's just the light side of it right but if you truly don't want to have this child and you don't want to have this child in your home and yet you feel forced to have it and then you don't feel that you can give it up for adoption which is the thing that you always hear you know there's so many people looking for to adopt kids Okay, but if you've ever tried to adopt a kid, it's really not that easy. 
It is not something that you just say, oh, look, I've gone to the grocery store and here are all these kids in the cabinet and I'm just going to pick one out and take it home, right? It's just not that easy. And so um, I imagine that there are going to be a lot of children who end up in families or with single parents who don't have the financial resources, who don't have the emotional ability or want to put in any time or energy to raise children. And I can't imagine how hard it would be to be a child growing up in a place where not only was I not loved and cared for, but I wasn't wanted. Um, They didn't want me to be there from the get-go. And I can't imagine that gets better with time and diapers and issues that come along with that. And so are we then looking at a generation of children who are going to be raised in horrible, unconscionable ways, abusive ways, and what kind of humans do we end up with on the other side of that? Hmm. What does that look like in a generation um, of of kids who grow up being not just not wanted, but perhaps even hated right in their all their life they've been hated. And this goes back, you know, the other complication of that, this goes back to the, the pro-life, you know, statement too, okay. because there are families who probably want to have children, but know that they don't have the means or the resources. And sure. so rather than having people say, oh, we'll take your baby for you, why not say, here's the resources and some things that will help you. Here's access to childcare. Here's access to, to food and resources. But we don't, we're very anti those things in our country for some reason. The other part of that, as you mentioned, children coming into unwanted homes. So I'm on the board for a domestic abuse shelter in my community. And we spend a lot of time dealing with, um, you know, assault and domestic violence. And one of the things that is statistically true is that when the weather is hot, domestic abuse increases. When the economy is bad, domestic abuse increases. And during the entirety of the COVID pandemic, domestic abuse increased to a level like we had never seen. Um, And so then you add complications like this in, and we're not going to be able to sustain what people need for those resources now, too, Um, because now if a woman doesn't have the option to say this is not a good thing for me, then she's stuck tied forever to someone who is the father of that child. And so, again, more issues that escalate from there and cause more abuse, more problems within a community. Um, And right now, like our shelter is already full, you know, even at this moment. And we have to turn people away or send people to other places that aren't as helpful um, or as hospitable to people. So as I'm thinking about that, I'm thinking, like, how does climate change come into this? And I know that that takes us in a totally different, you know, like, hard turn. Um, but, uh, well, I'm known for conversational whiplash, so here we are, y'all. And uh, so, you know, like, but... But you say that um, abuse and difficulty, when it gets hot, it gets worse. And as we are raising the temperature or seeing the temperature raise, which we all know is our own fault, um, as we see the temperatures being hotter all the time, um, and now we're going to put all of these kids and families into this situation, um, you know, what are we doing? Right. Like, what, what are the long-term consequences of that? And, and the other point that I wanted to make to your comments was 
doesn't it seem like the same people who are like, I'm pro-birth and I want everybody to be born, are the same people who are like, you had a kid, you need to figure out how yeah. to take care of them. We, you know, you're, you're just mooching off the state. Or we don't you're want access to contraception or any of those so things. So we don't want to teach you how to not get pregnant. We don't want to protect you from rapists or um, people who are going to abuse you. But we also don't want to, as a state, provide you with any resources and we want to call you names when you come to the state and ask for what you need to just sustain your child and to sustain your family we're going to call you freeloaders and we're going to call you lazy and we're going to call you all those names because you had this kid so you need to take care of it right and now we're going to say but we're going to force you to have this kid and and I don't I don't think there's anybody who is like oh well abortion is a great form of birth control just go on and do whatever you want to and then just you know we'll just take care of that I, I it, and that's the argument you always hear yeah but I I mean I've never met that person ever in my life have I met anyone on any part of the spectrum who is that person and I worked at rape crisis for ten fifteen years and. I've accompanied people to go and and get an abortion because that's what needed to happen. Um, And never once has that just, well, this will just take care of it. It's never, ever the the true response in the world. Right. And for people who have had to go through it, it's often a very traumatic experience or something that leads up to it that um, is trauma-filled. When uh, the day that Roe v. Wade was overturned, my church, my entire church, went to Raleigh to protest, which was a thing I've never done with my church before. Um, So that was cool. But um, I went wearing my clergy collar. And I thought, because I go to a lot of protests, because that's what I do for fun is, you know, go to protests. I'm sure you all are familiar. Um, You know, it's a Friday. What else is there to to do? (laughs) Some people go to bars. I go to protests. You know, it's, it's great. It's where I meet friends. Um, but I wore my clergy collar. Normally at protests, there's a lot of pastors around. And I was the only person in a clergy collar or wearing any sort of vestment. And it really surprised me and also made me feel really scared for a hot second when we started um, marching. But at the end of it, I had several people come up to me and say that um, it meant so much to have a pastor who was outwardly present there and making a stance um, for women's rights. And I wouldn't have thought of that as being like a thing, but it makes me sad that that's so foreign an idea that your pastor could possibly support you if you needed an abortion. Um, And as someone who I mentioned, like as being on the board for the domestic abuse shelter, I have to help people if someone comes to me and says that they need access to an abortion or need help. Um, And I don't see that as a conflict of interest in my ministry because I feel like when people need help, they need help, you know? So that leads me to the the idea of what, like, where do we go from here? And and I have zero answers to any of this. So it's a question that for me is, I don't know. Uh, When I ask a question, I like to know the answers. Um, And, um, I mean, that's just kind of like a thing, right? Um, Like, I learned it when I was in paralegal school years ago that, you know, you're going to go to court. And I did civil litigation, so you, you, you know the answer before you ask the question, right? Um, and so this, 
this idea that you're going to ask this question, like, where do we go from here? Like, what do we do? Like, the, this is the law of the land, and what are the implications that go beyond the obvious answers? Um, I am quite enjoying the story, and maybe you've all heard it, uh, that came out of Texas um, earlier this week. Uh, the woman who was riding in the, um, the, the, the lane for carpool lane. And so she's in the carpool lane, and she gets pulled over, because they don't see anyone else in the car. And she was like, my baby is here. And the Supreme Court says this is a person. And so we get to ride in the, the carpool lane because there are two of us in the car. Um, the state of Texas didn't think that was really a thing. Um, but then how do you have that two different ways? How do you say this is a person uh, in the womb immediately and then not say that on, you know, how do you have two different views of this um, at the same time. Right. And how do you legally uh, see that being um, um, a thing that goes together? Um, I, I got, if, if, so, if you're in a car accident and your fetus dies, um, you cannot get compensation because your fetus died. I mean, because it's not a human, right? According to the law, that's the way that happens. And yet, if we're going to say if you have an abortion, you are murdering this child. If you have an accident and the child dies, I mean, that has to be the same, right? So I think there are complications that come out of that for our black letter law, for our, our way that the law comes out um, beyond that. And then you look at, you know, I mean, we've all heard the, the idea that because our laws stack on top of each other, one decision influences the decision that comes after it. And a lot of the laws that we enjoy today are based on the law that came out of Roe v. Wade. And so, um, you know, is there going to come a time when they come back and say, you know what, you're not married anymore and you don't have any rights to insurance? Or my very favorite one before we got married was we couldn't have a joint gym membership because we weren't a family. So we couldn't have the family gym membership. We had to have two individuals um, because we weren't married. And it's like, like, how ridiculous does this become um, when you say you've enjoyed these rights and responsibilities for this much time, but we're going to suck them all back and say, nope, you no longer are um, a, a, a part of society that enjoys this right. Well, and especially on the day of Roe v. Wade being overturned, when Supreme Court justices literally say those are the next things yep. on their agenda yep. to reevaluate and yep. reassess. And, you know, even in that conversation, we're leaving out the part about how a lot of this um, disproportionately affects people of color and minorities, people who um, are, you know, in lower income levels. When you talk about people having to drive across state lines to have access to abortion, you know, people people can't just do that. You know, you can't just especially if you have a job and kids like leaving and traveling far away to access something that you may or may not be able to get once you get there is not feasible. Um, and then you talk about people, you know, sitting on the borders of states and asking questions. When we had both of our miscarriages, we were asked lots of questions about what happened before the miscarriage. You know, um, my husband had to leave the room and they asked if I was abused or if anything had happened. And then they asked if I had any reasons that I was hesitant about the pregnancy. Um, and so it's very combative, even in a place where, you know, well, you're going through something traumatic. There's still that combativeness. And it's. I don't know. It just doesn't it doesn't make any sense to me. But yeah. So what is next, you know, and what comes next? 
And I like to find hope in what Reverend Barber said this week. You know, maybe this is the, the link, um, you know, in a, in a chain of things that is going to cause something to happen, right? That, that link that needed to happen. But when you can't see the future and know what's actually going to happen, that's not as, um, doesn't feel like that's necessarily going to be the thing. Well, and, and for me, like, I, as I think about that, like, you think, oh, okay, this is going to be that moment, um, that linchpin moment that we're all going to rise up. And, um, and then I look at gun violence, uh, gun violence in schools. I mean, I'm married to a teacher. And gun violence in schools is near and dear to <laughs> my protest heart. And, um, um, you know, y- you look back at Sandy Hook. Like, how are we this far past Sandy Hook and we still don't have any damn thing to show for it? You know, how do we let those children die and we've done nothing? And you think that's going to be the linchpin moment that is going to make this change. And yet, we all bitched and moaned and cried and and offered up whatever little Thoughts bit we had. Thoughts and prayers. I mean, we, I mean, and even those of us who say, you know, Fuck thoughts and prayers. We are all about some action, but what action are we taking? Because the action that we're taking is that we're on the couch bitching. Um, and that just doesn't, I mean, that gets us nowhere. And, yeah, we had a little bit of a needle move on gun violence recently, but, I mean, let's all look at that legislation and go, this isn't worth a damn. Sorry, I'm just all... I know, my word. I've I'm never just, heard I'm that kind of language before. Stuff. Um, I didn't wear my pearls or I'd clutch them. <laughs> I didn't know you were that. Um, anyway. <laughs> but, but, I mean, it just is this, um, like, what really causes us to get up and do something? What really causes us to move forward? And to really stand up and speak up and be heard. And I'm not sure this is it. And I don't know how far we have to let this pendulum swing to the crazy before somehow we suck it back. And, I mean, and that's just, I'm sure that there are people on the right going, well, it swung to your side to the crazy, and now we're just straightening it up. Well, no, I don't see that. It's really what's going on here. Right. I mean, I well, get that it the center is, is somewhere we never seem to actually land. Well, and there was a, you know, they did a Barna study last year showing how our country is more polarized now even than it was during, like, the Civil War. And um, that's bad. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, it's, not, it's not good news. Um, and what's really interesting is that the polarization started like we were the most united until the civil rights movement started. And then we've slowly become more polarized um, in a really like far stretching way. But what I don't understand is um, when it comes to guns and the obsession with guns and the link to Christian nationalism. And I still can't figure out how we ever got to that point in our country because it doesn't add up. The Bible has a lot of things to say. You know, you live by the sword, you die by the sword. There's a lot of things in which Jesus tells us to lay down our weapons, to turn our weapons into plowshares. Jesus didn't say that. That was in another part of the Bible. But still, it's in there. (laughs) 
and it, you know, whatever. It's in one of those books of the Bible. I'm a pastor. I have a master's of divinity. <laughs> You're welcome. Anyway, uh, <laughs> but it's, you know, there's a Me lot. Me too, surprisingly. I know. Look at us. We're so smart between the two of us. It's, yeah. Anyway, uh, what's that song? I stand amazed in the presence. Yeah. yeah. Of Jesus, not of us, but, you know, you can be amazed if you want. Anyway, I have severe ADHD. I don't know where I was going with that. So I just want to interject that, you know, the next Civil War will have better colors. You know, I mean, this, this blue and gray thing, you know, I mean, we're going to be like, I don't know what color they are, red, I think, but, you know, like, we're rainbow. And so, like, at least there's better colors on our side. Oh, yeah. It'll I mean, be high fashion at least. Yeah. You know. I won't be the fashion person. I'm not very fashionable, but somebody will be. <laughs> I'm a lesbian. I got no fashion. Um, so, so, yeah, but they're gay men on that side, and they will dress us up beautifully. You know what's amazing? So where my church is is on one of the oldest cotton mills in the United States, and they actually made um, the uniforms for the Confederate soldiers oh, wow. at this mill until it was burned down by Union soldiers. Um, during the Civil War, and then they built it back and started making uniforms again. But how cool would it be if that was the site that made yeah. the uniforms? I mean, it'd be a total, like, yeah. you know, I'm going to start planning so, it now. Suddenly we're sounding revolutionary. I don't have that kind of power <laughs> at all, but I know somebody who helps manage the Rocky Mount Mills, so the word's going to get out. Okay. I'm down for it. Yeah. We're going to make it happen. It's a revolution. It's coming. Yeah. So, like, so seriously, like, what, what does move us forward in this? And not to revolution necessarily but what moves us forward to to the voting power and what moves us forward as i'm not i'm not so fond of the the term progressive but i don't know of a better term but what what takes those of us who are on the left and unites us because i mean let's be honest um the right they unite up very well like, they all, like, somebody says, let's do this, and they all go, okay, and they just go do it. And on our side, somebody says, let's go do this, and you have 500 people who go, well, are we going far enough? Well, is that really what we want to do? Well, I think that I'm a different segment of that than you are, and I'm not sure that I can do that with you because you're not quite exactly the, nah, yeah. and we all splinter off into our own little groups uh -huh. And we all then start fighting with each other. And the other side over there goes, ha-ha, we're all together over here, and we're happy, and we're just pressing le legislation, and we're just all voting as a block, and we're just all going to be in this all together. And those of us on the other side are sitting over here fighting with each other about whether or not we include that person or that person or whether we can agree on this or that or the other. And so what is going to be that linchpin moment that makes those of us on the left say, you know what, we really are a big tent. We really do have all of this in common, and this is something that is going to move us forward, and maybe it's not as forward as we want to be, but you know what, forward is forward, and if we just keep inching forward, eventually we can get there. Yeah. And maybe there has to be that moment when that happens, and I don't know when that is, but I know that it needs to be soon. It reminds me of that line in anyway, Hamilton. Are you a Hamilton fan? No, but yeah, my Hamilton. wife is, so I've okay, seen it many there's times. Okay, there's, <laughs> there's that line, you know, if you stand for nothing, Burr, what do you fall yeah. for? And, you know, what do we stand for? We've got to figure out what exactly it is that yeah. is worth fighting for. Gail and I, a couple of years ago, along with lots of other Methodists, went to an event called UMC Next. 
um, that took place at Adam Hamilton's church um, in Kansas City. And uh, it was supposed to be a, a group of like progressives, for lack of a better term, coming together and talking about what the future of the United Methodist Church might look like. And even in that room, we were extremely divided over what our ideas were for how the church should move forward. Mm -hmm. And I remember thinking, good grief, if a group of people that I thought agreed can't agree on anything, how are we going to accomplish anything in the church, let alone in the world, (laughs) you know, when it comes to how we vote and how we do things. Um, But I'm always appalled every election season by the amount of people I know who just don't go vote, you know, and as much as we hate to have, you know, politicians be the people who fix things, sometimes that's the only place we can take any action. And it really is essential. You know, we have events at our church, even where we have voter registration and invite people to come register to vote. Um, And there's always ways that we can be living into that and helping that and at least making awareness I mean, like it or not, we all live by the law of the land. I mean, we just do. And we may think, oh, politicians. I mean, let's talk fake politicians. Um, but um, they are making the laws that are the law of the land. And if we want to affect change, it's where we have to start. Right. Um, and there's, there's a large segment of me, very large, that you know church and state church is here state is there and you know there's this magic line between them um even if it's a boy i hate that term chinese wall but even if there's you know that magic line between them that we pretend that they don't interact with each other and what we see is that that magic line doesn't exist in other places um and I, I would venture to say that on the other side of, of the religious spectrum, um, they are completely commingling um, religion and politics. And we are still trying to hold that line between and not in our churches, not in our faith, stand up and say, you know what, we, we have got to move this forward. Mm-hmm. Um, we have to, as people of religion, people of faith, um, recognize that we have to be politically active in the world. And we have to be paying attention and have to be uh, learning to vote as a block, um, even if we're not getting everything that we want. Right, right. And I think that's the problem is that we don't... Um we don't really focus on the where we can do something right now. It's just we get lost in the big picture of things. Then we become hopeless, you know, and that's, and it's easy to do, but at the same time being hopeless doesn't accomplish anything. You know, hopeless is somewhere akin to helpless. Yeah. Um, when you lose your hope, you, you stop acting. And, um, I don't think we're in a hopeless situation. Um, but that's a choice. Yeah we can choose to wring our hands and and wonder how this is going to but i mean if you look at the history of of overturning roe v wade i mean we'll just use that as our example because that's what our topic is sort of um although we've meandered far away um but um if you look at the history of how the 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 right the religious right has approached this they have been very methodical in how they have approached this 
over the last well, it's been going since the Reagan years. I mean, I mean, really, you, you look at Reagan coming in in, in what, 81? Um, 80, 80 was the election. 81 was, was when he came in, in January. And, um, you know, so you, you start to see that beginning with Reagan and, and the methodical way that people have come in and been a part of and how this is um, progressed um, to where we are now. And where we actually have a Supreme Court that I'm fearful for what they might do um, because they now wield that power. And and the idea that I've always held on to, which is this idea of checks and balances, you know, like every branch checks the other, right? I mean, that's the way our system is supposed to work. Mm-hmm. And yet... Uh, we see in the legislative branch, it, nothing seems to be checking, and certainly nothing has been checked in the in the uh, executive branch for at, at least the last eight years. I mean, um, it's it's gone out of control, um, I think, in the executive branch. And maybe that's starting to come back to center a little bit, at least in that branch. But they don't seem to be really checking and balancing it anymore. anymore. Right, and there's no bipartisanship, no um, actual working together. Yeah. So since we're meandering, can I talk about yes. Star Wars for a second? Yeah, meander. This is really important, so just bear with me. Dun, 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 dun. I'm it's told that I don't right. sing it right. It's still not right. It's still not right. <laughs> uh, so <clears throat> a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, uh, the last Skywalker was the last Star Wars movie, and it is by far the worst movie of the series. I'll give you that. But there's a part in which these people who are working for the rebellion are trying to make a change and shift things because the First Order has taken over. They've destroyed things. It looks like there's no hope. Everything is broken down. And one of the main characters is sitting um, in this place where they've doing, been doing spice running, which is a bad thing. Um, but they've been trying to, to get information around and, and move things around. And she's just lost. She's like, I don't think anything good is going to come out of this. Um, and then the other person says, they make you, sorry, they win by making you feel like you're alone. And I think this comes back to the unity thing, right? And the being on the same page is so often we feel like we're alone. And part of it's because we don't use our voices the right way. I think there are a lot of very forward-thinking pastors in the church who are serving churches that are not forward-thinking. And so we don't speak out and we don't say things for fear of your paycheck or <laughs> getting a call to your you know, bishop or whoever in your political authority. And so um, I think that adds to the feeling of loneliness for people in the church because they think they're alone too. And so they don't speak up or they think that maybe this isn't proper theology when there's a lot in scripture to say about why we think the things that we do. So, um, and then one more thing about Star Wars, and then I'll stop. There's a movie called A New Hope, which was the first Star Wars movie, but actually the fourth Star Wars movie. And if you remember, um, in the third Star Wars movie, just stay with me a second, you know, just, you know, the the end scene, Obi-Wan has the high ground, Anakin burns in the fire, and he becomes Darth Vader. It's really sad. Um, You know, Padme dies for no reason, and anyway... Uh, But then years later, so all the Jedi have disappeared, and years later, you have this revival of hope when everybody thinks it's too late because Obi-Wan Kenobi trains up this young Luke Skywalker. And what do they do, Gail? Uh, Something. They destroy the Death Star. You're exactly right. (laughs) Oh, wait, is 
here's my music. Dun, 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 it's still wrong. It's still wrong. Um, but at least we won't get copyright infringement notices <laughs> because yeah. nobody will recognize what that was. So, so George, <laughs> just walk on by. <laughs> I'm really sorry for that. Anyway, I'm not sorry. sorry. You learned something today. I have learned And I'm glad something. for yes. that. If that's your takeaway, take away Star Wars. So, um, I, I had something to say about Star Wars, but now I've forgotten what it was. Sorry. It doesn't matter. Um, it always matters. So, we, we're to the point of our, our chat when I'm going to invite the audience if they would have a comment or a question or a something and they would like to, um, to add, um, say who you are and then say it. All right. Perhaps we're just continuing to meander. Yes, sir. Hey, thanks for the great podcast. Darren Stedman, priest in the Episcopal Church. Just want to underline, um, I'm really remembering the scenes that you uh, told us. It's just a storytelling of... Oh, you I see. really love your shirt, Thank and I you. think we need to say this for people who are listening, yeah. that you are, in fact, wearing a Stormtrooper shirt. This is my Saturday vibe. I like it. Stormtrooper. So Stormtrooper in the pool, pool, though, you know, so that's... Just floating by the it's pool. It's appropriate. Yeah. yeah. So, um, love hearing your personal story about going to the pharmacist and what they said to you and how you interacted and going to the clinic and how you interacted with the people there. So I guess I'm feeling my call as a chaplain to kind of form a, form a pastoral presence and get more storytellers who have experiences like that to, um, to get out and tell their story, I guess. And that's, that's a part that I can play and yeah. just encourage more storytellers to tell their stories. Because I think the people that we're talking about in, that are fearful of um, you know, what the world might be like uh, with abortion as, a, you know, as it was a couple weeks ago are just talking about ghosts. Right. They're not talking about real people. They're talking about people, like you said, who, who want to use abortion as birth control. Right. You know, and those people don't exist. That's not the people that we're trying to protect here. Yeah, and so thank you for that. One thing I would say is if you have a Planned Parenthood anywhere around you to contact them, because I have some good friends who work for Planned Parenthood that are actually compiling stories and putting it out, and they're asking specifically for chaplains and pastors to be present for people who are coming into those situations. So definitely reach out to your Planned Parenthood. I can give you some contacts if you need it too. Um, but I would strongly encourage that um, for any of us to be supports in that process right now too. I was thinking that when you were talking about where are we and how can we show up, I'm Midge with the Gay With God podcast hint hint i'm on at three <laughs> but <laughs> but anyway i Shameless think plug yeah well you know you got to do it when you do That's it right. right but anyway my my real intentional thought was that i believe that as a community we have been put down for so long and disempowered that when you act us to co ask us to collectively stand up we don't have that internal belief system, some of us, that we really have that power mm -hmm. that will be listened to, that will be safe enough when we turn up to speak out. Um, we had a pride mass at our Episcopal church during pride month and the, I, and the priest goes, so how many people do you think are gonna come? And I said, I have no idea. And he goes, how many have signed up? I said, practically no one. But understand that in the gay community, we don't sign up for things online because then people will get us. <laughs> and so I think that that's 
that's the scary part of us collectively coming together is how many of us believe that we are safe to do so or that we will have the power. I'm, I'm going to encourage you to, um, to take on as a mantra um, the song, you know, I got the power, power, <laughs> and uh, just mentally sing that in your head because you've got the power. Hey, good morning. Uh, my morning. name is Donna. I'm from the Atlanta area. And I just wanted to share something that I remember my mother telling me. Um, I'm just a few years younger than you. I'm um, born in 66, so turning 56 this year. And so, um, of course, when I was young, I didn't understand what Roe v. Wade meant and everything when this came about in 73. But I do remember my mother being very terribly upset about this and I specifically remember her telling me about a very good friend of hers in high school who had to get an abortion and basically did the back alley coat hanger thing mm. and her friend died oh, and she was just she was between devastated and horrified and filled with anger and she's like you know this is the the, the best thing that could have happened she said this is going to be saving so many lives and she said i remember her telling me nobody wants to go out and intentionally say yeah i'm going to go have an abortion today but that touched her so personally mm -hmm. and i remember that because you know what was i then you know six seven years old or something and i think it all goes back to personal stories mm -hmm. with anything like this if we're talking about abortion if we're talking about um, lgbtq rights anything because you can push it off on the side and it's somebody else's issue somebody else's problem until it's something that personally involves you or your loved ones mm -hmm. and we need to have more stories like that and i appreciate you being vulnerable and sharing that with your story and i was like i didn't even realize that mm -hmm. but i'm thinking what horrible trauma you're already going through yeah. and then to have to put up with all this crap from the pharmacist and you know, giving you the third degree. Yeah. But it's the personal stories, I think, that are really gonna be making the difference and getting those out. So um, we, we've gotten the, the, the sign that we're running out of time here, but um, I just wanna say that I think to your point that um, um, yes, we all want to hear the stories and yes, we all, you know, it's the, oh, that's happening to someone else, it doesn't really matter, um, but if we are going to be Christ followers, um, Jesus didn't walk past people and say, oh, that's happening over there, mm -hmm. and it doesn't matter. Um, he waged right into the middle of it and, um, and offered healing and offered hope in every place uh, to everyone. And I think if we are going to truly be Christ followers, that is, is our call is to recognize that it might not be happening to me and it might not be happening to mine, but um, everyone is me and mine. Mm -hmm. And um, we do not encounter another human that is not me and mine. And whatever is happening to them is happening to us. And, um, yeah. and that needs to be maybe our mantra, that uh, me and mine is all. Absolutely. And all is who we are called to be in service to. Absolutely. So thanks y'all for joining us Thank here at the you. Goose. This is fun. 
And you can you can find us online. Um, uh, Unbound.love is our um, our website, but you can also uh, find us wherever you find your podcasts. So come and listen again. We will meander more. Thanks, friends. <laughs>